Who is to partake of the Lord's Supper? Professing believers in good standing and members of the visible church. And we as a denomination believe that as elders exercise the keys of the kingdom, we are therefore to interview people based upon their baptism, profession of faith, knowledge of the gospel and membership of a church. And so as we said beforehand, if you are such a person and have been seen by the elders today or previously, then you are very welcome to come. But if you do not meet any of these requirements, please do refrain. But we don't know your hearts. We only know credible professions. We don't know who's regenerate and who's not. And therefore we must guard the table biblically by the word. So who should come to the table? Mark 2.17 They that are whole have no need of the physician. But they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. No one is to come to this table except from repentant sinners. If you have not sorrowed for your sin, grieved and hated your sin, turned away from your sin, and believe on Jesus Christ and his mercy alone for salvation, do not come. If you are someone who has repented and turned to Christ by faith, then do come. This table is not for those who think they're whole and healthy. This is not for people who think merely, well, I'm not perfect. This table is not for anyone who thinks they have a righteousness in themselves. Do not come. This is for poor people, not rich people. This is for sinners who know their sin and do not trust in themselves, but trust in Christ. John Owen, in a case of conscience, speaks to Christians who are lacking assurance and doubting and are wrestling, have I repented enough? And he says, what is the lowest condition that hath the nature of conviction and sincerity so that souls may not be discouraged from closing with Christ because they have had no greater convictions of sin? It's a great question. And he says these three things are the lowest thing you need to know you have true conviction and true repentance and you are Christ's and you should come to the table. So what's the minimum required? John Owen says, first of all, you do not trust in yourself for righteousness. Luke 18.9, where it says that people around Jesus trusted in themselves for righteousness. And then Christ gave the parable of the publican uh, and, the, and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee trusted in himself. Your person is enough to please God. You must deny that. Secondly, 
You must not be seeking works of righteousness to please God. Romans 10.3, speaking of the Jews, that they seek a righteousness of their own in what they do, not knowing the righteousness of God. So a truly repentant person knows nothing they do whatsoever is righteous before God, and they are seeking God's righteousness alone. In step three, they know that outside of Christ, they are lost, hell-bound sinners. And therefore, they're resting on Christ's righteousness alone. That's the minimum, the truth, don't, don't get me wrong there, of what conviction of sin and repentance is. Everything else is extra and the Spirit of God will give you deeper, greater convictions. But this is minimum. You don't have righteousness in yourself. You're not looking for righteousness in your works. You know you're a lost sinner and therefore you trust in Christ's righteousness alone. These are the kinds of people who should come to the table. And therefore Christ invites you in Isaiah 55, 1, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat, yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Our table address comes from John 6, 53. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. When Jesus Christ was incarnate in the likeness of sinful flesh, there began a union and communion between him and his people. This is something Biblical, historical, confessional, but yet there seems to be a divide. We in the West tend to neglect union with Christ and his incarnation and focus over to the atonement. The opposite is true in the East. They overemphasize the union and incarnation and often more or less neglect the atonement. The biblical, historical balance is both and. We're united in a communion with Christ and his human nature, and he does so for the purpose of being our head and dying for our sins. And therefore, we must have union and communion with the flesh of Christ, or there is no salvation. The necessity is given here, except Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, there is no life in you. You're not saved. You're not forgiven. You're dead. Because everything that Christ does, he does in his person. The whole Christ. One person, divine nature and human nature. His human nature, body and soul. In separable. 
And as he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, he accomplished life for his people. Abundant life, spiritual life, immortal life, the life of union, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. Which means we must eat his flesh. John chapter 6 is not speaking of the Lord's Supper. It is a sermon in a synagogue on the Sabbath day, two years plus before the Lord's Supper. Eat here is simply using metaphorical language for faith. In verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me. Verse 40, he says, And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life. So he's only using metaphorical language. Because in eating, you take something that gives you life and strength, you eat it, it goes down, and it nourishes you. And so faith is the same. Faith unites you to the whole Christ, including his flesh. And what he has done in the flesh is given to you and enables you and gives you life. And this is you. Everyone at this table has professed to eat in the flesh of Christ. You've believed on him as your Lord and Saviour, your prophet, your priest, your king, your shepherd, your husband, your head, your beloved. He is yours. Which means we must have an appetite. Why does anyone eat? Why does anyone drink? Because you have a need, there's a lack, and there's a desire for something. We know our lack. We are all dead dogs like Mephibosheth. We're all lame, and uh, we are all sinners. And Christ alone is our life. Therefore, we have a hunger and thirst for the Son of God. Jesus Christ's flesh is present in the Lord's Supper. Jesus Christ's flesh is present in the Lord's Supper. If it is not, there's no life, no power, no blessing, no benefits. Jesus Christ's person gives the benefits. It is in his flesh does he die and live and is raised and saves. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 is clear. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Let me quote John Calvin to you. They are greatly mistaken in imagining that there is no presence of the flesh of Christ in the supper. Why? Why is it important that Christ's flesh is in the supper? The presence which the nature of the sacrament requires, so it's required, necessary, which we say is here displayed in such power and efficacy that it not only gives our minds undoubted assurance of eternal life, but also secures the immortality of our flesh since it is now quickened by his immortal flesh 
and in a manner shines in his immortality. Everything we receive is from the flesh of Christ. So if Christ's flesh is not here, nothing is here. But how is Christ's flesh present? It is not present physically, carnally, corporally. The bread is always bread and never is but bread. It doesn't become the flesh of Christ. The wine is the wine and never becomes anything else except for wine and does never become the blood of Christ. The answer is Christ is in heaven, his body is in heaven, his flesh is in heaven and it will remain there until the second coming. But the Holy Spirit takes the flesh of Christ and unites it to the elements so that we receive it by faith. Calvin again. The Spirit truly unites things separated by space. The sacred communion of flesh and blood by which Christ transfuses his life into us, he testifies and seals in the supper. And that not by presenting a vain or empty thing, but by their exerting an efficacy of the Spirit by which he fulfills his promises. So we don't go, sorry, Christ does not come down to us, we go up to him. Christ's humanity is in heaven. The Spirit comes and unites the elements as symbols to his flesh. We receive him not by the eating of the mouth, but by the eating of faith. Faith receives the flesh and blood of Christ and all that he has done for us is given to us and received by faith. In the words of Ralph Erskine, he's meditating on benefiting from the Lord's Supper and he writes this poem. He oft the gospel, he oft the gospel table spreads with his own flesh and blood. Faith on the rich provision feeds and tastes the love of God. The sacrament makes that which is invisible, visible. It makes Christ who is absent, present. Christ who cannot be seen, seen. The love of God which is unseen, seen. Grace which is unseen, seen. So that we as fleshly creatures, who are stirred by fleshly things, God stoops down like a father to a child and says, Here son, here daughter, see the body broken for you in the bread. See the wine shed for you in his blood. Now taste, taste his grace, taste his love and remember his death for you. Let us pray. Our post-table exhortation is from uh, Romans chapter 8. It speaks about there who have no condemnation in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Brother and sister in Jesus Christ, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. The Spirit has given you life and ability and blessing. And therefore it is our duty to walk, behave, conduct, live, not according to the flesh, 
but according to the Spirit. Here in this chapter it says that we are to be spiritually minded. Think, contemplate, um, will, desire according to the Holy Spirit. Renew your desire to please God by living your life according to the Holy Scriptures. May it be a delight to you and not a burden, not grievous but joyful that you were in the flesh and you are someone who now who lives in the Spirit. Secondly, if you through the Spirit do mortify your sins, just like Paul in Romans 7, he still has the war. But it's the no condemnation that gives him the encouragement and ability to war against the flesh and live in the Spirit. So when you are finding you sin or you lack or you want, remember condemnation, sin is destroyed. Christ has delivered you from this body of death. The spirit of life has freed you from the law of sin and death. And seek to overcome your sin daily, progressively, step by step, sincerely, looking forward to the perfection in heaven. Know the Father. The spirit is in us to life, to know as God the Father, Abba, Father. Know he is pleased with your presence. He desires your presence. He wills your presence. Therefore, enjoy prayer. Is prayer hard at some times? Yes. Is prayer difficult at times sometimes? Yes. But make it your joy. He delights for you to be in his presence. And if you have the Holy Spirit and then bask for the rest of your life in love, Verse 35 and following says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. No, in all these things we are not conquerors, more than conquerors. Through him that loved us, I am persuaded, neither death, nor life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, any other creature is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus.